inspiration generally for me it means helping someone to if, if that inspiration is coming from outside helping them to find the breath within the breath of life the breath of understanding the breath of, of um, moderation the, um, the breath of calm the breath of meditation um, so it's it's that breath of life it is allowing people to rediscover the breath of life in themselves Hello and welcome to Think Inspired, a weekly conversation about inspiration and its role in the creative process. My name's Drew and I'm your host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Inspo, a search engine for inspiration. Now, this is a curious and often misunderstood topic that my team and I have been obsessing about for the last year as we've been building our product. We've had literally hundreds of conversations with creative thinkers about the nature of inspiration, and this podcast is our humble attempt to capture some of those discussions, share our learnings with the world, and hopefully help you think inspired. My guest today is one of my creative heroes. His name is Gregory David Roberts, and he is the author of Shantaram, a breathtaking novel set in Bombay that sold over 6 million copies and hailed as a masterpiece. He's recently published a new book called The Spiritual Path, and he's also producing music from a studio in Jamaica. Greg has lived an insanely adventurous life and has captured the imaginations of millions of people all around the world, including myself. I'm literally shaking in excitement for this conversation and cannot wait to get his perspectives on inspiration, on life, on creativity, and whatever else comes along the way. So, Greg, welcome to Think Inspired. Alrighty, Greg, hi, welcome to Think Inspired. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Blessings, blessings and respect. Thank you so much. Blessings to you as well. And uh, why don't we get straight into it with a big question? And I've been dying to ask you this question for a while now, as I've read all of your books and just heard all of your interviews and, you know, uh, learned about your life. Um, what does inspiration mean to you? <laughs> well, it, it, if we look at the root of the word um, from the original Latin into Italian, the root of the word in English means um, to literally to put breath inside um, something. And of course, it's not just a physical breath. It used that, but it came from that, from inspirare and so on, to breathe within um, and to, um, to inspire is, in my view anyway, to fill people with a, a natural um, reaction that they were all born with. We're born with, I think, a measure of hope, a measure of love, a measure of this and that. Many things in our lives and our circumstances tend to crush those things and push them into the boxes or we may ourselves say, look, I don't have time to worry about that right now. I'm going to focus on this and so on. But um, inspiration generally, for me, it means helping someone to, if, if that inspiration is coming from outside, helping them to find the breath within, the breath of life, the breath of understanding, the breath of, of um, moderation, the, um, the breath of calm, the breath of meditation. Um, so it's, it's that breath of life. It is allowing people to rediscover the breath of life in themselves I don't think we ever give anything, if we're creative people and we, or we want to inspire, I, I don't think that we ever sort of give them a little box, a toolkit, there it is, and, and so on. It's really inside themselves. 
it's a kind of spiritual placebo effect in a way that they're, we're not, uh, as artists, we're not really giving them anything other than a creative expression of something. It's all inside themselves, that inspiration, when that rekindles and, and builds. So for me, the, and the main inspiration in my life that I would like to pass on is just never to give up. Just never, ever. It seems like you, you have to give up. It seems like you should. It seems like you must. I've been there so many times. The black dog sitting right beside me, the black dog of depression, the black dog of, of sort of being, being self-defeated and of powerlessness. But each time I, I was lucky enough, someone was there to help me, a situation happened or I found a little spark within myself and I kept going. And each time I've looked back on those dark episodes, I've thought, wow, they were nowhere near as epic as I thought they were. Uh, it's receded into the past. I can hardly even remember that huge cliff face that, was, that I was looking at and thinking this is the end. No, it's not the end. Never give up. There is something around the corner. There is another person out there. Reach out, speak to somebody, um, involve yourself in life, hug a tree for God's sake, you know, to compliment a flower, um, compliment a, a butterfly that goes past you and just tell it how beautiful it is. Say it out loud. Oh, it was so beautiful. And see what happens to you. See how your own personal inspiration gets rekindled. So that's an answer to that one, if it makes sense to you. Oh, that's that's a that's a beautiful answer. In fact, I think that covers about three or four different questions I was going to ask. So that's that's absolutely amazing. Oh, hey. um, I'm curious because you've had such uh, such a um, almost an extremely diverse life, right? You've been uh, you've experienced so many different environments, so many different contexts. You've been inside prison, outside prison, back inside prison. So many different identities, so many different names. I imagine that um, your process of getting inspired perhaps may have changed or evolved through these different life stages. Um, I've always been really curious, actually, when you were in prison, right, arguably uh, as dark a place as one could imagine, um, how did you find light during those times? How did you find inspiration during those, perhaps those, those toughest moments? Well, um there's one thing you can say is that the the, the men who are in I've, I've been in a male prison, so I don't know the experience for in a women's prison. Um, the men in prison who are the most well-adjusted, who are who have come to terms with themselves, with their own sense of personal responsibility for why they're there, and who are um, who contribute the most to to the prison to other men, are generally the artists. Um, it's a painter. It's a guitar player. Uh, it's a writer, it's a poet, um, it's somebody who has something that is continuous in their life. It was there before they went to prison, it'll be there after they go out of prison. The through line in my life from all the way has been as an artist. I started writing when I was five years old. I sold my first story for money when I was 16. I've been a serious writer all my life, no matter where I was. So it, it, I think if you are careering around and sort of careening from one thing to the next in your life without any kind of through line that's going to take you no matter how strange the experience is there's always that thing inside you that's a through line if you don't have that then you are just like a, a you know a ball in a pinball machine being knocked left and right by life if you have a through line of family if i always knew no matter where i was on the run in another country that my mother loved me and i loved my mom and i i knew that we were connected she was thinking of me every day i've met so many men they had no connection with their family they were raised in 
foster homes that were unfortunately not happy, not beneficial, and many are. Many foster homes are the, are the making of both people, the foster family and the foster child. It's so wonderful when this really does work. But I've met a lot of men who didn't have that. They had no through line of love in their life or family. They had no through line of education. It was so difficult for them. Many of them have huge problems with literacy. So you can't just escape from that environment, pick up a book and take yourself to a desert island or whatever, right. because you can't read and it's not open to you. You have um, so many difficulties and so on that, that what's happening is that often, until you reach a, a breakthrough point yourself, you just keep blaming everything in life and not yourself. A through line helps you. And that for me is, as an artist, I had my mother's love. I had these two anchors, if you like, or these through lines that will help you get through most of it. And uh, art is a great expression in prison. The men I found who were the most well-adjusted were those who found a way to express themselves creatively, which is why art programs in prisons are so important. Wow, what a beautiful um, answer. My, uh, my dad has taught uh, meditation programs in some UK uh, prisons. And that's something that he was, uh, I, I think perhaps one of the most meaningful things that he's ever done in his life, just because he found that um, it's incredible how uh, there's just so much pent up, you know, uh, tacit anxiety and anger that's there. And actually prisoners, pr prisoners are more uh, victims than culprits, right? Um, and uh, they absolutely need those release mechanisms. And oftentimes when you go to prison, there's almost this like assumption that you're no longer deserving of those mechanisms, right? Because you failed, you failed at life, you broke the law, and now you no longer deserve the sort of perhaps the same artistic privileges as you would on the outside. And yet when you are inside, that's when you need them the most. So um, no, that really re deeply resonates. Thank you. Big respect to your dad. That's a brilliant thing to do. It's so amazing. Um, and that there's no doubt that the work your father is doing in helping prisoners to re reach a meditational space will help to reduce further crimes and recidivism in the future. There's no doubt about it. It may be a small incremental change at first, but it's there. It's real. This is not just talking. It actually works. When, uh, and I know from my own experience, you say about searching to find the light. When I was in solitary confinement as the punishment for escaping from prison, I was put in solitary for two years underground. And um, in that experience, you can still call out to other prisoners from time right. to time. If it's too much, they'll come and open the door and slap you around. But um, you can still call out within reason to other prisoners. And after I'd been there for three months and I knew I had two years down there and the average is two weeks, I would hear, um, you know, prisoner after prisoner coming in and have the same attitude, fighting, angry. They're in the punishment unit. They're surrounded by big, heavy guards who are running the punishment unit. And next thing you do, there's resentment, there's resistance, there's fighting. And so on. And one guy, I just called out to him after I'd been there for a few months. And I said, listen, I don't know you and you don't know me, but you're not going to make it through here. He said, oh, I heard about you. I want to catch up with you and have a yap when we get out of here. And I said, you're not going to get out of here. Every time they open the door, you start fighting with them. You're going to crack your head against the wall. Something's going to happen. You, you've got to stop this. And he said, what can I do, man? I'm shattered. I hate it down here. I can't stand it. I hate all of them. I hate the whole system. So I started the meditation with him and I said, sit by your door. I'm going to do this. I'm going to call out a 30 minute meditation. They ring the bells at 7.30 from 7.30 to 8. When they ring the bell again, you're going to hear the, the muster bells being rung. So 7.30, put a, put a pillow by the door and listen. I'm going to talk you through this meditation. Within a week of doing it, I had another guy call out and say, can I join in? Yeah, of course. 
within a month, all the guys in the unit were doing it from 7.30 to 8, we're doing this little meditation. And it meant that when a new guy came in and was fighting with the guards or whatever, as we all do, as many of us, most of us do, the others would call out to him and say, chill out, man, chill out, calm down, take it easy, pull up, pull up, take it easy, man. We're just going to work this out. 7.30 tonight, we do a meditation. It's going to chill you out. You'll see. And the governor of that unit called me in and to his office after some months of this and said, please, whatever it is you're doing, this Indian mumbo jumbo that you're doing with the men, don't stop it because it's uh, helping so much. Self-mutilation rates, zero. Suicide attempt rates, zero. And assaults on my prison officers, zero for the last month and a half. So keep doing this. I said, okay. And then he said, is there anything you want from our side? And I said, yes, I'm a writer. I need a pen and paper. And he said, well, um, I don't know about that. So I quoted Dostoevsky, who, when he was in prison asking for a pen and paper, said, give me 15 years with a pen rather than three years without one. Wow. Um, so I quote, <laughs> quoted Dostoevsky, and he smiled and said, all right, I'm going to trust you with a pen, which is a deadly weapon in the punishment unit. I'm going to trust you with a pen and some paper. And that's where I started Chantaram. So reaching for the light to try to help other guys who I could see. I was, I was older. I'd been more around the world. I'd learned different languages. I'd come back into that prison as a very different man. And I listened to this and thought, I've got, I've got to do something. I have to try to stop this violent, terrible violence against themselves and so on. And it worked. So what your father's doing there is tremendous. And I know from my personal experience that this helps enormously in prison. So big respect to your dad for that. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing that story. Um, I remember hearing one of your interviews and, uh, and it deeply inspired me. In fact, how you uh, brought some peace to the people around you in the prison and how it almost, uh, I mean, yeah, it literally did inspired the experience of, of writing Shantaram. And if we just like continue on that thread for a second, something that I found really uh, uniquely fascinating about you in the context of the world we live in today is that I think you know, you, you are a guy that writes really, really immersive, like 900 page novels, right? And we're living in a world where everyone is always sort of harping on about how attention spans are declining, right? Um, I come from, uh, I, I love to write and I feel I do come from that world of fiction, but at the same time, I, I am building, you know, consumer technology. And I know that uh, this is one of those things that everyone's almost like negatively optimizing for. Right. Instead of choosing to design perhaps a slightly more like conscious and immersive uh, world or digital experience, um, I feel like people are uh, giving in to that negative trend, accepting the fact that, OK, people can't pay attention for more than, let's say, 30 seconds. Right. So let's compress whatever we need to do in that 30 seconds. Um, so I found that just amazing that you've managed to sort of not only capture attention, but truly capture hearts and imaginations in a world that where uh, people are really struggling to do that um, through authentic storytelling. Um, and I'd love to ask you just a little bit about your most recent work, The Spiritual Path, which I'm currently reading. And perhaps we could start with just, if, you, if, if you're comfortable sharing just the inspiration for that, because I'm, I'm halfway through and it's, it, it's, it's really just a remarkable reflection. I'm not sure how exactly to categorize it. You know, I, I feel like there's so much of Shantaram that I see in it and the direct influence, but um, it, it's really a beautiful uh, reflection of, of your journey. Thank you very much. Um, it, basically, I uh, decided to go off the grid some years ago, seven and a half years ago now. I decided to go off the grid and take the leap of faith. I had spent all of my life investigating 
religions. I'd learned how to pray in all of the major religions. I'd learned the prayers, whether it's in Arabic, in Sanskrit, in Hindi, or whatever it was. I learned the prayers. I um, prayed with believers all over the world and joined in with them, um, trying to understand um, the essence of their, not just of their religion and their belief system, but also of their faith. Um, I was always fascinated by the depth and, of faith uh, and so on. Um, after many years of investigating these things, I finally found that and meeting many, many teachers. As soon as I heard there was a spiritual teacher somewhere up in a cave or a mountain, I'd get on my bullet and ride up there and see the park, the bike, and, and um, always bring some hash. Um, I'm always, uh, I'm a Royal Enfield rider myself, by the way, not to interrupt you. So I, I, I that, that, that really uh, rings true. <laughs> It's a great bike, yeah. and they get better and better. I had, you know, the, the earlier models of bullets. I, I used to carry a spare bike with me in my in my kit <laughs> and my pieces and the saddlebags. But the new ones were just brilliant. But I'd go there. I'd ride up in the mountains. I'd see the holy man. I would sit. Usually a man, by the way, uh, one woman in maybe fifty men who were the, who were spiritual teachers in that tradition. I would go there, sit there, listen, ask questions, bring some hashish and some fruit as an offering and give it to the holy man. And then that was my chance to sit and listen. I gathered lots of lots of information, a bit from this one, a bit from that one. Then I finally met a teacher whose physical practice, his tantric practice of performing his siddhi, of performing a fire ceremony, of um, blowing two conches at the same time in front of a massive fire of taking the coconuts of cutting his chest and rubbing the, each one of the coconuts in the blood of his chest and then offering them the panchatantra, the five elements, the sacred elements into the fire. I'd never seen this done before. I'd never seen it performed with such intensity, such charisma, with also such commitment, passionate commitment. And it stunned me to see this, to realize for the first time, to see what um, active, tantric, physical devotion to something is like it's strenuous it's physical it's exhausting you're covered in sweat at the end of it and so on it's so intense i watched this for years and finally when i um and listened to the instruction of this teacher and we became very good friends we still are i love him so much and when i told him i need to go back to australia to look after my parents for some time they're both near death and i need to go and look after them I may not see you for some time. He said, good, 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 you must do this. And he actually told me, he said, your mum will not pass for another year and a half. And um, he said, but your father's health is also not good. And it turned out that dad passed before mum, which none of us expected. Wow. But at the time he said, here, take this. And he gave me a conch shell. And I, I'd watched him blow it already for some years. And I said, what am I going to do with this? And he said, <laughs> I, I thought, well, I don't even have a cut or you know, authority to blow this thing. I don't have a cut. As, and he said, oh, use it as a decoration on a shelf or blow it, do whatever you like. No stress. It belonged to my mother. It was her con. She blew it the last 10 years of her life. She was blind and she blew it every day in her devotion. So it's a gift for you. So I took it and then went back and decided, you know what? I'm, I'm looking after my parents. I'm off the grid anyway. I'm 24-7 looking after mum and dad. So I can go off the grid now formally and really focus on the spiritual. So I did it. And once I started to take this leap of faith and blow the conch shell, within a very short time, I said to my uh, soulmate, I have to write this down. I, I had no intention of writing it. 
I just had an intention of doing it and seeing if anything happened. When I blew the conch with absolute sincerity and authenticity, would something happen? And it did. So I told my partner, I've, I've got to write this down. We, I've got to put this. So the book, The Spiritual Path, began. She said, how long do you think it'll take? I said, maybe two years. <laughs> As it turned out, at the end of two, it was, I need another year to get into this deeper. At the end of three, I need another year to get into this deeper. At the end of five, I need another year to get into this. And I started writing it in the sixth year. I sat down and put it together from the notes I'd assembled. So it really was, it was telling me, no, no, you're not ready to put this out yet. You've got more to learn. You've got more. So but firstly, I didn't intend to write it. And then secondly, when I did, it kept telling me, just wait, learn a bit more, go a bit deeper. And it was after the fifth year of practice, of continuous practice, that it really blossomed into a, a, what I hoped would be a short, simple book about this experience that might help some other young searchers out there looking for some kind of connection, some kind of answers here and there, or even some better questions. <laughs> what an amazing story. You know, and, and it really is a, it's a beautiful book. So thank you so much. I think myself and so many others are grateful that, you're, that you wrote it. Um, thank you. I, thank you very I, much. Thank you. I, I, I'd love to hear, what are your thoughts about the relationship between um, the spiritual or the divine and creativity? Right? Does um, does, for instance, the spirituality help in creation, and how does creation then further or deepen spirituality? Um, because I found that you're uh, you're someone that seems to have really successfully straddled almost like the rational and the the metaphysical. And I love at the start of the book how you define the different realities. Right? Like there's the uh, uh, the material reality, the the quantum reality, then the spiritual reality, and just how you almost have created frameworks for yourself. To navigate those, um, so yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love your take on this because you seem to be walking a very spiritual path, and yet you seem to be um, having a very almost explosive creative phase as well. There's so much I see on social media that you're doing, uh, writing, music, podcast, books. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. Um, a good, it's a really good question. How how much does the spiritual fundamentally influence what you're doing, and so on? Um, I think just to, to go back to the phrase used at the start, I think the divine, I don't know anything about God. Um, that, that's sort of so big, so huge. <laughs> uh, I, you know, as a, I can't stare at the sun for 15 minutes without going blind. How can I? That's one sun, one yeah. sun and among the hundreds of billions of billions of, of suns throughout this. And I can't even look at one, my one, in our part of the world. <laughs> I can even look at our sun that sustains us without going blind. If I stay out and exposed to that same celestial body, that sun, and leave myself exposed to it day after day, I will die. So it's so powerful. And that's a tiny, tiny infinitesimal speck within the infinite creativity of the divine. So I don't know how I'm expected. If I can't even embrace my own sun, how can I get, to together with God and say, give me a big hug. Right. No, I don't think, I think we are, it's like overestimating <laughs> what we are and underestimating what we are at the same time. Um, you know, so overestimating in the sense that I, I just don't know that that's even possible. It's just so immense, so huge to create the multiverse of infinite creation of universes. What the hell? And I'm this little speck in this one. But on the other hand, this little speck right here has awareness. 
And so far right. as we can see, there's not much of it around here in this universe. <laughs> it's like there ain't a lot in our neck of the woods for, for a start. So this is a very special thing. So humility, but also recognize the significance of what it is that we have a capacity to be aware and to say, I acknowledge you. I can, I'm aware that there's something more than this. And I acknowledge you, whatever you are. So number one, God's like, like too big for me in a sense. So I don't know about God. The spiritual, yes. If there is, I think, if you like, it's like the breath of God, whatever God is, it's the breath of God in this universe. Is there a spiritual component? Yes. Were we human beings spiritual before there was even a single word of religion on this planet? Yes. We were spiritual before we were religious. The religions yep. didn't make us spiritual. The religions came from our spiritual nature, from the fact that we're spiritual beings. Now, when it comes back to the work, so that's just the thing. Like the spiritual, spiritual I'm really interested in, I really get into it, and I try to study it, and I try to immerse myself in the spiritual, especially through interactions with nature and very, very positive friends. But when it comes to God, I don't know anything about God. It's so big and so strange. I just know what I like, what I uh, think, like to say is my own personal understanding of the spiritual. And that, that I have, and I can sort of share with that people, but God's like too big. Next one, for me anyway. Uh, when it comes to the art, I can say this. I've mentioned it in this little book, The Spiritual Path. Once I started on this spiritual path, I, without realizing it, everything around me changed. Like this weird process of psychic osmosis, everything just slowly starts to change around you and you don't even notice it. I had a gangster poster on the wall from a movie um, with a guy holding a gun and it was just so well made. It was such a brilliant poster. I must have had it on 10 different places I lived. I kept it with me. I put it up. It just disappeared. I don't even know where it is now, for example. I think I might have given it to somebody. Um, I had so many paraphernalia of the motorcycle life. I was a biker. I rode Harleys and things for years. People would give me a birthday gift or something of motorcycle paraphernalia. I had it all around me. It gradually disappeared. What replaced those things? Posters. I had images of my family, framed pictures of family. Oh. Just suddenly, each time one thing came down, it was replaced with that or a picture of devotion or a picture of nature. All the way around me, when I looked, none of the old images were still there. They were all they'd been replaced. The music I listened to, the playlist that I had when I was just when I started on the spiritual path, if I listened to that now, half of it was songs of rebellion, songs of resistance, songs of rage, whatever. And I loved that. At the time, it was really interesting, hard rock and rebellion songs. And now, little by little, when I look at us, at after those years, as those years progress, the playlists, they're all full of love and hope and inspiration <laughs> and faith we can do it and we're going to make it and we're going to get there and it's all going to be good. I, <laughs> and I, I had no idea as it was happening that this massive transformation changed. Here's the second part. So number one, the spiritual starts to permeate every aspect of your life without you even realizing it. The second thing is now when I do anything, I always have a component that's reserved for the divine. Whatever you are, whoever you are, you don't need this. You don't want it. You're beyond wanting and needing. You've probably invented them. So you're beyond wanting and needing, but I'm free. You've made a universe in which a free creature can freely give you this or not. So I freely give you this word, even though you don't need it, I give it to you freely. That is a part of everything I do. Every record, every book, every sentence, every everything I do, every artwork that I create, a part of it is to say, 
I don't know who, who you are, what you are. I just know you're there, and I, I love you, and I send you this with love. I don't ask for anything in return. I just offer you this. What that has done, incorporating a spiritual element in, in everything we create, has given us something that we just didn't have before. In, in any of the work that I had, it's given it a cohesion. It's given it a direction. It's given it a kind of membrane uh, beyond which it's not natural to go and within which it's natural to keep working within this spiritual membrane. And so I think when we, if we consciously commit to a spiritual component in what we're doing and say a little part of this is for you, some of it's for me and my life and my friends, and I hope people like it in this material world, but a bit of this is for you, it fundamentally transforms what you're doing and energizes the project to an extent that nothing ever has in my life before. Is that an answer? <laughs> That's, uh, I, I have nothing more to add. That's, that's an amazing answer. <laughs> um, following that, I, I couldn't, my, my mind was just buzzing with this uh, question as you were talking, quite honestly. Um, I'm really curious, what's your relationship with ambition, right? Because I find sometimes uh, many people see, you know, ambition and spiritual practices almost like conflicts. Right. They see uh, there's a stereotype of like someone who's walking a very, you know, living a very, let's say, monastic or spiritual life. And, and they, they are, you know, uh, uh, renouncing. Uh, it's, it's a graduate. And, and I guess as per the book and what you've just said, to some degree, you've also been renouncing certain uh, pleasures or aspects of your life, whether it's motorcycles or whether it's a kind of culture, whether it's a kind of like mindset. It's just been a very unconscious mm -hmm. uh, renunciation. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear what's, what's, it, it's a personal question. Feel free not to answer it, but what's your current relationship with ambition and how has that changed or evolved or devolved or whatever, as, as you've been walking on this path? Good question. Again, I, because ambition is one of those things that it's almost a, a no-go area. Right. You know, um, we're, all, we're all expected to have some in this yeah. high competitive material world, but we're not supposed to actually acknowledge it or talk right. about it. Um, so it's a good question. I think um, what what happened over the the last sort of fifty years of um, academic postmodernism, what what has happened in in because what happens in the academic world filters through to the rest of the world. What happened with postmodernism that we started to abandon the qualifiers, the the qualifying words that were always put there throughout history that were there to guide us. They were proverbs, they were words of wisdom. They were Aesop's fables. They were the kinds of things that were passed around, and each one of them had a qualifier. So, for example, the qualifier here would be the word valid. Say a valid ambition. What's a valid ambition? One that um, helps you to seek personal fulfillment, to achieve personal fulfillment, to express yourself, to work as a, um, and live um, independently, uh, to support yourself from your own resources and so on, and the, then to help your family, uh, your, whoever it is, what stage you're, whatever stage you're in within your family life, young person, kick something back into the family, you get decide to get in a relationship, well, you're starting to kick money into that to help each other. A valid ambition is one like that. It helps you to achieve personal fulfillment and to work within, a, within the society of, the, of others work within that society in the most positive and beneficial way for yourself and for the society. An invalid ambition 
is one that would, let's suppose, an invalid, I know to, in today's moral relativism, people are going to say, who says it's valid? Right. Who says it's invalid? <laughs> I answer by saying, you know, you know, you know, you yeah, know yeah. what an invalid desire is. I mean, a desire to, let's say, to be the biggest cocaine dealer um, on the east coast of the United States of America. This is an invalid desire. It's going to cause problems for you, problems for the people around you, and massive problems for the society in which you live. You may think this is why I want to be Tony Montana and be the biggest coke dealer in the world or whatever and go out in a blaze of glory. This I would tend to call an invalid ambition. Um, if your ambition is to um, stop, um, for instance, all of the progress that's being made in clean energy, because you can still get five years of, uh, if you gouge the community, you can still get five years of petrol and hydrocarbon profits. And so you're actively, your, your ambition is to stop something good so that you can benefit and get a profit. And this is not a valid ambition and so on. So I think what happened is we forgot the word valid. We forgot these qualifiers, that, you know, reasonable, decent, humane, the qualifying word that would have made that word ambition a reasonable word and, and, and one that we all should have, valid ambitions, those that help us to seek fulfillment and help us to provide a benefit into the world. So with that, yes, I, I have a set of ambitions. Fortunately, I'm old enough at the moment not to, to want to be right out in the middle of it. I've, I've been the lead singer in a band. I know what it's like to get applause. I've, I've been to writers' festivals. I love them. The writers' festivals, I waited so long to go to them, and then when I got to go, it was the thrill of my life as a writer to be in a festival of people who love books and with people who love writing them. Yeah. It was just fantastic, you know, after 70 years of not being able to go to a writers' festival and so on. But I don't need to actually be there in the front and getting the applause or the feedback from the people in this way, in the way that I might have done in my 30s, 20s, 30s, and so on when you're younger. So your ambition then starts to get a little bit of a horizon around it. It starts to get mm. its own arena of, of what's reasonable for you, what's valid, what you can achieve, what you can, what you, if you commit too much, you're going to let people down if you, you know, and so on. And what is it that you want to achieve? I want to achieve work that provides some level of comfort um, in this world of difficulty and suffering, some level of inspiration never to give up. And at the same time, uh, create art and work that I think stands up as good work and in the longer term and um, to leave something for you know, my, my, the people who come after me, for my son, my daughter, my, my grandsons, my granddaughter, for my wider family, um, to, to leave something for them that is so clean and green in what it does and so right that I'm leaving them something that is, is a benefit to them and not something they have to fix up or clean up or, or apologize for, if you know what right. I mean. And I think those are reasonable ambitions. Just as an example, when we set up Empathy Arts, we decided from the get-go it's carbon neutral. Um, everything that we make is recyclable. So we're bringing out a book this year, a hard, special limited edition hardcover of The Spiritual Path. It's cradle to cradle publishing. It'll have a banner around it saying, if you don't like this, throw it in the compost. It's fully biodegradable. <laughs> Amazing. So the ink, paper, and so on. So the, where does ambition express itself for us in the record that we've produced for Love and Faith, for the album? It's a double LP. It is fully biodegradable. 
we found the best producer that we could to produce clean, green LP record. The cover, the ink, the pressings, the plastic, everything is uh, recycled and biodegradable. So the, uh, the ambitions we have are to, as we go along, to walk the talk. Another yeah. example, last one. And when you talk about ambition, here's an ambition. We create contacts, contracts that are fair, honest, positive, and creative for both sides. So we pay our lawyers to make sure that the contract is as fair for the other person as it is for us. And it costs us more and we'll yeah. make less profit, let's say. But this is what I would call a valid ambition because it's, it's uh, respecting the dignity of each of the artists we work with and so on. <laughs> I could go on a lot about this, but that's a, there's a bit of a taste of where we are and what, what, where does ambition drive us? It drives us toward a more humane world. It drives us toward our common humanity, what we have in common as human beings. And it drives us to a cleaner, greener way to be in the world. That's where our ambition is. That's so beautiful. Uh, I had no idea about the, almost the, the green credentials of the work that you're doing. I got that sense of it just from uh, being a consumer of it, for lack of a better word. But I had no idea how like uh, tangible it was, right? I mean, that's like the spiritual parts, perhaps the only... Uh, holy book you could feel okay about throwing away right or just like something yeah. bad bad happening to it you're actually you, there's there's no damage <laughs> karmic damage being done there so that's that's great um just to continue the theme of work for a second um sure. one thing i found uh fascinating about everything that perhaps you've done recently has been um the almost evolution from the very first big piece of work, Shantaram, um, I found that on, on a very personal level, I always feel really, really upset after I finish a great novel. Um, I feel like there's almost a sense of regret that I'm about to leave this world soon and I'm not going to be able to enter it again. So with Shantaram, I was just relieved that, okay, uh, there's the mountain shadow and I'm going <laughs> to almost like, you know, pick up where I, where I left. Um, at the same, you know, um, and what I love is how you've just kept evolving that world with a lot of nuance as well, a lot of different perspective and manifestation. The fact that the characters are now not only living on in sequels and, and other books, but as, as you know, characters in songs, characters in music and how Shantaram, the world that you made is like almost inspiring new worlds and new creations. Um, and there's almost like this endless loop that I hope almost like never ends. Right. So I, I don't know if that's a question, but I'd love to just to get your thoughts on that because um, it's something quite unique that I haven't necessarily seen a lot before normally when people close projects they're often closed right and they uh, and and they remain that way and if you're fortunate enough to get some great movie deal that's that's wonderful but most people don't uh, but i feel that you're going about it in a really really creative way using a bunch of different mediums so i'd, I'd love to i'd love for you to expand and just elaborate on that sure um thank you i, I would recommend for any writer um at the moment who's looking at a, at a project um, think about think about your project and, and remain true to the, the internal passion of the story. Remain true to that. But I would say um, think about lateral um, development of your story. Um, think about characters who could then go on to have their own life, um, that go on their own trajectory. Um, think about stories that you maybe just touch on in your novel and you think, wow, actually, I could spin that off from this novel into its own novel because that thing that I'm referring to here, I don't have the time and space here, I, but I could spin that off. So I, I, I think 
um, finding spin-offs, finding lateral development of a project is tremendously important for any creative artist. It's also in music, you know, um, when you're, if you're, I create a lot of music, I write music, I play it and, and produce it. When you're making the music or you have in the back of your mind that there is a chance that it might be picked up by someone who's going to do a remix of your music. Now that's happened for us. And um, what, what it does is if you are creating it in the, if you know this, and then that remix takes your song that was at number 600 on a list and takes it to number eight, um, if, and you're inside the top 10 because the remix took you there. When you're aware of that, when you're creating, a part of what you're doing will be for that market itself, for people who might want to pick up something and develop it and so on. So there's a part of that as well in, in where you're creating it. But I think um, look at your project, look at how and say it, it, it may be, you may say, this is a self-contained thing. I never want to revisit this. I never want to come back. Okay, fine. But if you're writing something and you find a character, you might find it's a really compelling character. You didn't think that character was going to be that good when you introduced the character. But the character, someone like DDA, for instance, who was really supposed to be there just as a bit of exposition, he just took over a whole second. He just became his own character, and I, I loved him. Yeah, and, he's and amazing. Wanted, let him, <laughs> and gave him the right. Thank you. I let him do what he wanted to do. Well, when as you're doing it, um, always think in the back of your mind, could I do a separate book for DDA? Could I do a story? And it's, you know, the early years of DDA in uh, Marseille. Um, and, you, and I think I probably could. So for any writer out there looking at their project and think, is there a way um, that I could do some lateral? Which characters jump out? Could I spin this character off in a little, say, five short stories about just the DDA stories, five short stories? Yes, that could be done. So think about this and um, always think about the expansion of your character. Could I take this character and put them in a graphic novel? Would, could I spin off a whole series of stories about this character in a graphic novel? Um, for instance, Carla, um, the early years of Carter Bai, the Mafia Don in Mumbai. There's a spin-off there where there is, you know, so you think and, and think cinematically, think in terms of TV, think in terms of plays, think in terms of musicals you know the musical of the thing you're doing think big and think wide and before you know it something's going to jump out and then you put that aside and think wow and you never know that thing that jumps out from that may turn out to be the best thing you ever do so leave yourself open to lateral exploration and discovery for your characters or and think big think is there a musical in this is there a tv series and etc etc think big <laughs> that's that's Wonderful. And actually, I've just been uh, synthesizing some of the questions and stuff that I've been thinking about for a while now. I've been working on my current product, um, which is like a, you know, it's, it's a search engine for creative inspiration. I've been thinking a lot, a lot about um, inspiration. Um, and I think I wrote something on Twitter or somewhere a while ago that, you know, your, your every gesture is a node of lasting inspiration. Right. And I feel that um, what you've said is such a, like, I don't know, it resonates so much because um, especially your point about the remix, the fact that everything that you are putting out, you're almost like creating not to create and be done and be finished, but you're creating to inspire, right? Whether yourself, whether yes. someone else or some future version of yourself. And uh, as you said, it's up to you if you want to close that loop at some point because it's done, um, but it doesn't need to be. Um, so 
I'm thinking out loud here. I don't even know I'm making any sense, but I'll, I'll probably make some notes after I call. Yeah. <laughs> um, but are you with your music now, just shifting gears from the writing, um, uh, you know, the different songs and albums that you're putting out, are you finding that you're able to perhaps say things and convey things that you couldn't in those many, many pages through Mountain Shadow, through Shantaram? Are you feeling that this is, uh, this is, yeah, are you able to like express something quite unique um, and different that perhaps has surprised even you? Um, well, uh, put it this way, I, you know, I was always involved in music. Um, my, we started, my brother and I started doing music when we were young. He excelled. Uh, I focused on writing, he focused on music, and he's one of, I'd say, Australia's best songwriters um, and tremendously successful and good at what he does. Uh, I followed that as well when I was on the run. Uh, I had a band that was very successful. We, we started our own band and it, um, we got a three record deal, which I couldn't take because I had a price on my head and was on the run. Um, but we were, I was always involved in music, singing, busking, playing, setting up scratch bands, writing songs and giving them to people. I used to write songs when I was on the run and give them away and let other people do the songs. When I finally had the opportunity uh, to record some songs myself, I took some of the tunes that I'd had with me for a long time. And then we set up and started recording in Jamaica, which has become my home now. Um, I just fell in love with the people, with the, with the spiritual nature of the people and the country and everything about Jamaica. And so I've, I've overseen a series of progressive recordings that we did like eight, nine times we came to record here. Uh, finally decided this is it, this is where I want to be. So, uh, you know, in that creative process, the, I've always been involved in music and it's always been a part of what I do. I write to music before I start any project, but no matter what it is, any writing project, I create a playlist and usually four or five. If it's a bigger project, at least four or five, there'll be an action playlist, romance playlist, melancholy, sad playlist, upbeat, happy, jumpy, ecstatic playlist. So I will have, and when I'm writing that section, I'll be writing it to that music and I'll play it over and over and over again. I may, in the course of writing a book, listen to that playlist 2,000 times. <laughs> wow. It is so deep. Yes, it's so deeply embedded in, I'm, I'm literally writing in the rhythm of it by longhand, then typing in the rhythm of the music and, uh, as I'm typing. And music is a fundamental part of what I do constantly. So... Um, it was always there. It's always a part of what I do. And I finally had the chance. Uh, to, to, I had so many commitments previously. I couldn't get into a recording studio. I just didn't have the time. When we finally did, we did it. Now we've got um, the third album. We've finished our third album. There'll be two new albums coming out this year before the end of the year. Five more singles, uh, six more music videos, um, and then four EPs of, with four tracks on each one. So we've been recording nonstop. But the way I work, just to put that in a little context, I, I start with music, for example. And when I've, I've reached a certain point, I've finished a track, and I'm at the point now where it's ready to be pre-mastered or to send off to the masterer, I'll switch to the other, other desk and work on a collage that's been sitting there that whole time. Nice. And I'll put in a day or two on the collage. When that's done, I'll move from the collage to the video section and start working on the videos, the music videos, because we create and build all of those ourselves. So we'll work on the videos. When I'm finished with that, I'll switch around and go into the philosophy and start working and continuing to keep up with the latest philosophical texts that people are sending me. I think this is interesting. That's, say, a breast of 
things and, and the, uh, philosophical thought, put down some thoughts on that, then move back and I'm back into music and so on. So I'm continuously moving from one desk to the other and the projects are always going. And um, so it's, you know, a focus now where I can, I'm in, I have the time and I have the space to literally move from project to project. So, and it is like that all the time. I'll usually be doing three different projects in any one wow. day. Is there any one of those creative mediums that you identify more with than others? Of course, the world knows you as this this best-selling, remarkable novelist, but you're equally producing albums and, and putting out a lot of stuff. So I'm just curious, like how, how do you self-identify as a creative? Or maybe you don't anymore as well. Um, just as an artist. And nice. um, I think, you know, um, <coughs> excuse me, just as an artist, um, the first identification is with the word uh, for me as a writer. I started writing when I was five years old. It's what I do. And it's my first instinct. And it is the word. There is um, there's a terrific young uh, poet rapper here named Scantana, the man with the most grammar. And um, when we when we discuss these things, What's happening when we discuss our work and our art and so on is that both of us uh, have words, literally words, that appear in front of us in, in our mind. Someone will say a sentence and those words are there in front of us and we can take that word and shift it, take this word and shift it, that, take the first of this word and tack it on. We're automatically doing this. And comedians do the same thing, in a sense. The comedians are listening to what you say and for the gag or for the twist, to take it and twist it around and give it back to you. Well, what we're doing as well uh, with the word is that we, we, our natural instinct is to go into the word, to play with it, to stretch it, to break it up, to cut it and re reposition it. We're naturally doing this each time in our work. So the first instinct is the word. But the thing is, writing is mostly solitary. Mm. You're mostly on your own. I, I must have spent, you know, I mean, years of my life completely alone in a room writing books. Years of my life I spent alone in this art. Then you go into a music studio and you collaborate. <laughs> right, right, right. You it's a gem. Singers and yeah, yeah, yeah. musicians, engineers and mixers, and it's fantastic. It's so different to be part of an ensemble of a group sound that has blended itself into one, one harmony of everyone with the same pure intention, everyone with the same passion and feeling. And I love that so much. So yes, first instinct is the word and writing. It's to pick up a pen. I'd go mad if I couldn't, if I can't find the pen, I'll go nuts if I, if you know what I mean. Whereas not so if I can't find that particular note on the keyboard, I'll just keep going till I do. So the first thing is writing, but the, that beauty of collaborating with other artists, you get that in film, you get it in movies and TV, and you get it in music. And as a writer, I love that part of it. So that's, that's a huge thing. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, that's, the, that's so great to hear. Um, I, I want to touch upon something that you kind of uh, mentioned in passing, but I, I, I couldn't really get it out of my head, and that is Jamaica. Right. Um, and more in the context of just location and place and how and what it means to you. Um, and the context for this question is reading Shantaram in the Mountain Shadow. For me, like Mumbai is not the place where all of these people hang out. Bombay is not just a place where that happens to have all of these people. Mumbai is like a character in and of its own right. Right. It's like a living, breathing character um, that changes like every not even just through the books like every page it's like the city is different 
right? So I feel like you probably have a very unique relationship with place. So um, questions that I have in my mind are like, what's your relationship with Mumbai today, right? Um, because of course, like you're outside of it. And then, um, yeah, love to hear a little bit more about Jamaica and the influence that it's having on you as a person, you as an artist. Um, and uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, the thing about India, it'll sound weird to a lot of people, but <laughs> it'll also sound logical to a lot of other people. The very first time I put my foot on in the soil of India, on under the ground, I got off the plane, went went out of the uh, the airport, put my foot onto the ground, and I got an electric charge running through me. I know I've lived in India in a former life. I know it. I put the line in in um, the novel. I put it in there and gave it to um, Carla, and that is that yeah. everyone was Indian in at least one former life. <laughs> yeah, um, and so on. <laughs> but I I felt I had come home, and I knew nothing about India. I was an Australian boy who'd never left the country, and suddenly I found myself the first place I went to, other than New Zealand was there to India, and but I knew the first second that I put my foot on the ground, I learned to speak Hindi, Marathi very quickly. I um, performed rituals I, I shouldn't even know how to perform. <laughs> I've never seen them done, but I do know. I felt connected to India in a way I've never been connected to anywhere else in my life, and that was solidified and, and by the people because there is a kindness, a tenderness in India and Indian people that does not exist anywhere on this planet, that it's not like it anywhere else. It's the, it's the example for the world in how to be kind with one another. On the other hand, I know India very well, and if things get uh, hectic, run for your life, because it, when Indian people go off, they really go off. I mean, the whole street will go off and so on. But then that's once in a blue moon, and in between you've got people on a daily basis, millions and millions of people being kind to each other and treating each other with a smile and tenderness. So that really solidified it for me. I felt I'd been there before, and then I felt I knew these people. Uh, it's, this, is, this was my people. This is the way I like to be with people, to smile and to be kind and to get on with people and so on. I'd had so much stress and hassle in my life, and I finally found a place where people want to be nice with you. And a complete stranger. And then I came to Jamaica uh, to record music, and what we did when we came here, it was set up as a studio, and I'd never been to Jamaica before, and I had certain criteria. I wanted a warm, rich, bassy sound. I wanted people to understand the spiritual. The album was called Love and Faith and so on. And various criteria. My soulmate found the studio and said, I've got the studio. We've booked it. It's in Jamaica. So I came the first time. There are so many similarities between Jamaica and India. It will blow your mind. The first right. time you come, it will, it will amaze you. There are so many uh, similarities. So if you lived in India quite a while, then you come to Jamaica, you're ready for Jamaica. India is the best prep school for Jamaica. <laughs> you, yeah, it is because no problem. And it, it is like, and you think it's <laughs> never going to happen. It's not going to work. And so I say, hey, no problem. Don't worry. Yeah, don't take tension. <laughs> and then sure enough, it does work. It's amazing. It's brilliant. It does work. And it's the same here. People have this a very similar attitude. Look, take it easy, chill out. It's going to work. It's going to be okay. And it is. And if you've learned to go with it, as we did in India, everything here in Jamaica makes sense. I love the spiritual nature of the people. You walk down the street, a complete stranger will say, blessings, God bless you. If it's an, an elderly lady, she might say, God bless you, my son. She's never seen you before in, in her life. 
and she sees you and gives you a smile and says, God bless you, my son. Wow. This is so rare to find this still in the world where people say blessings and respect to each other every time they see each other yeah. in the street. It's, it's been lost in some, we all did it. It's been lost in so many places, the hurly-burly, rapid pace of life and everything. Here, people still remember that it's important to say respect to one another, to keep everything okay, and to boost people up. So I fell in love with the people. And then during COVID, I stayed here for four months alone um, on a beach here and uh, looked after myself nonstop. And that's when I bonded with the land, with the birds, with the animals, with the trees, with the fish, with the ocean, with the sounds of the wind. I bonded with it. And when uh, my partner returned, when things opened up again after COVID, I said, that's it. I'm not leaving. I've found my wow. place here. I've found a place where the climate is perfect for me, where the people are kind and um, respectful with each other, but where there's so much creativity. Pound for pound, there's so much creativity in this country. There's so much talent. Everyone is the rock star in their own way in Jamaica. <laughs> Well, that's a lovely, uh, uh, oh, that's, that's such a wonderful conclusion to that question. I love that. Everyone is a rock star in Jamaica. Um, should put that on a t should probably put that on a t-shirt or something. That's, that's badass. Um, great. So I, I, I know that there's a bit of a, a time crunch from the last few minutes while, whilst we're here. Um, so all of these questions have really come from me, right? Through, uh, as a human. Um, I was uh, playing around with our product just before I got on this call with you, which is a, it, it's an AI search engine for inspiration um, used by a bunch of creative people around the world. Um, and I just typed in the word spiritual path on it, right, as a search term, just to see, like, what would a machine generate, right? Um, and uh, there was a That's bunch of crazy things that came out. So uh, I wanted to ask you one of the questions that was literally written by this AI. Uh, and the question is, how can one adopt a spiritual path and still have a full-time job? If I can be a bit crude here. Please. One of the reasons why I love, if I can be a bit crude, one of the reasons why I love my spiritual teacher is that he's very direct. He never quotes scripture. He knows everything from Upanishad, Zendavesta, everything. He knows he's read it all. He can quote from it. If you ask him a direct question, he'll say, oh, this is in Upanishad, blah, 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 and he'll tell you. But he never quotes them. He talks straight from life. And his quote on this, his answer, that's a bit crude. He says, if you want to succeed in this life, in this material world, you have to learn how to kiss God on the cheek <laughs> and the devil on the ass at the same time. <laughs> so that was his instruction and saying this, this is a hard line to walk. And what that really means is, I mean, if we look at what, what did Jesus say? And a fantastic teacher, brilliant mind. What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Wow. When Lazarus asked him, what, what should I do? He said, give up what you have and follow me. Give it away to give everything. All your riches, you're a super wealthy man. Give it away and follow me. If you want the answer, that's the answer. And he said, but I, I can't do that. People are dependent on me. I have, I have money. I have houses. I have land. And Jesus said, see? Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Wow. And so on. So if you want, then it's a very similar thing. If you want to be in this world and be a spiritual person, you have to learn how to kiss one on the cheek and the other on the ass at the same time. Well, I think for, for us, what it means is to be a spiritual person in this world is to have the pole star, the, the, the compass that you set is your relationship of devotion for me. 
if you are in this physical world devoted to those you should be devoted to your mother your significant other your family members your good friends your colleagues if you are devoted in what you do not just reasonable and okay but devoted this is going to give you a pole star it's going to give you a spiritual orientation in a physical material world if you're devoted in your spiritual practices this will percolate through if you're strongly devoted if you look how many times uh, how many of us forget our ancestors and not realize we need the ancestors with us and they can't come to us we have to ask them that's how it's done so how many of us put a flower just one flower in front of the picture of the ancestors every day mom dad grandparents somebody how many of us do this well in india many people do and it's one of the things that keeps them grounded they'll put a picture there in front of that person and every day say you're still with us we're still with you i carry your dna in my body i am an expression of every ancestor i have ever had in history of our species all the way back to mitochondrial eve if i am alive it is because my line is still here and many lines were wiped out you get a, a volcano that wipes out an entire city and all those grand great grandchildren everyone gone and there's no no one to carry on that line if you are alive as you are and i am alive it means that we are carrying within us the genetic history of our species mm. there is an unbroken line unbroken line between us and the original mother mitochondrial eve so we are carrying that now in these things the spiritual practice a little spiritual practice just take a little flower from the hedge and put it in front of a picture and say i love you mum i love you dad whatever whoever that person is and just go on and do your thing this is a spiritual practice in the material world that's a physical picture it's a uh, a thing made out of atoms in this physical world the flower is made out of atoms but the intention behind it is 100% spiritual and is very pure because it's just giving and not saying oh get me out of the shit mom and dad help me i need your help i'm in i'm deep no it's saying please accept this i love you and i think of you you're still in my heart these this is the way i think to to make if the devotion in your life starts to go down then you're probably at risk of being overmaterialized and you look at the devotion is am i devoted to my partner am i devoted to my friends am i devoted to my work am i devoted to the divine am i doing and if it's slipping oh i think the material world's taking me over a bit mm. if you know what i mean and i'm losing that balance and so on so look to where you're devoted and if it's less than it should be pump up the devotion a bit and you'll get a nice balance between being in the material world and being a spiritual person i hope that makes some sense i uh, honestly i i don't think we could have asked for a more human answer which is fitting considering the question was asked by a machine right <laughs> so that's wonderful um as a last couple of uh just final thoughts musings questions um you know you have inspired literally millions and millions of people including myself uh, around the world um and i know you're a very humble person so i'm sure you probably don't talk about uh, a lot about the ways that people have been inspired by you and what they've gone on to do in the world but if you do have any uh, memorable incidents that are really close to your heart i'd love to hear them Uh, yes I, I mean there are there are so many um you know I can talk about someone who came up to me and said you don't remember me do you and I said you saved my life one blah 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 and it was so long ago and it was such a small thing and I I honestly didn't remember it and the person said but what you did then um you know it's it was for me what you did in this book is for all of us which was an amazing wow. thing to hear someone say 
you did something for me and you don't even remember, but in this book you did it for all of us. That was kind of nice. Um, there's a, you know, a, there was a prison guard who was involved in destroying the manuscript and later he um, came when I was at a writer's festival and brought a copy of the book and I got the chance to hug him and tell him it was okay. Insane. And, and he was crying and he was saying, I'm so sorry, I don't know why I did that. I was so angry at the world. I hated my job as a prison officer. And I, could, I was hugging him saying, it's all right, it's all right. And then I got to say, whisper in his ear and say, you know what? It's a better book. Don't worry about it. It's a better, <laughs> it's a better book. And you were just a really harsh critic. That version was nowhere near as good as this version. He said, really? I said, I'm telling you, man, it's a better book. Thank you for the harsh edit you gave me. And it relieved him of this. Those, those sorts of things are really transformational when they stay with you. If I just go back, though, you did say earlier, there's a phrase you used where you said um, a node of inspiration. And so on, you know, um, I, I, on the other hand, I've, I've also been a node of desperation, a node of the wrong things to do, a node of negative um, and so on. So a lot of what I do is a recognition that I messed up badly through my life in the gutter, hurt people and hurt myself, hurt others, hurt my family. And the recognition of that, a part of recognizing that is saying, I'm not only not going to do that again. I'm going to try to make sure that anything I do is positive and that is not, I'm not going to use it, say this thing, I could do this and make a big profit quickly. Uh, yeah. I could put naked girls in the video. <laughs> I'd make a, make a profit. You know what I mean? Oh, I don't want to do this. It's not about that. It's about recognizing what I've done, staying humble enough to not think, uh, put you know tickets on myself and say, okay, I messed up and now I'm great. No, look in the mirror every single day and remember this. And then move on and make sure that what you do is as positive as you can make it to be. So you redress the balance, you make up for it. And what is remorse? What really is remorse? Um, it's living a better life. You know, it's not just saying, oh, gee, I'm sorry and I regret that. It's hey. living a better life, trying your best. If you do contracts, they're fair. If you do anything else that you do like this, it's fair. And just by the way, AI, I'd uh, love to talk about that sometime. I'm really interested. Um, I think what you're doing is actually more a sophisticated algorithm than actual artificial intelligence. Nevertheless, the AI does fascinate me. And um, what I see at the moment is that we have, we've been uh, working towards an artificial intelligence. When it wakes up and says hello, that will be our first encounter with an intelligence not our own. That's the first alien encounter. The Close encounters of the third kind is going to happen with an AI, not with an alien maybe, <laughs> but that AI will be a new entity and we're gradually getting there. What concerns me is that we're doing artificial intelligence without artificial culture. Right. I want to see the artificial culture. I want to see that intelligence embedded in a positive culture that is fair, honest, positive and creative. It comes from the truth of what we are as human beings and not from, from the best of us and not the worst of us. Uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. And I, I love what you said so much and for so many different reasons. And it's something that I think about a lot as, you know, on a personal level and a professional level, because, um, I always take issue when, when people make bold statements about the future, right? That the future is this, the future is that. And it's like, look, man, that the future is what we choose it to be, right? Uh, it doesn't just happen to us. We can, uh, happen to it. Um, and it's a function of the choices that we make today. 
So I feel like yes. it's such an unhealthy conversation around AI that, you know, it's like man versus machine, right? And this narrative has existed for a very, very long time. Um, and it's some, I, I, I'm not uh, dismissing it because, of course, there are like huge, huge risks to livelihood, to, um, to industry. And, uh, and we need to be cognizant of those. But I think uh, we, more than cognizant, we need to decide that, you know, we don't need to design that future, right? Um, it's about infusing technology with a sense of humanity, with a sense of value, because ultimately yeah. what is AI? What are algorithms? They are only learning what we feed into it, right? So if you feed in hate, if you feed in gender bias, if you yeah. feed in racism, or if you feed yes. in subtle things like content that's only in English, right? Because most yeah. of the internet is only in English, then of course it will yeah. be culturally uh, um, defunct, right? Um, so I think it's yeah. just about like deciding now, where do we want to be, right? In a, in a few years time. And, and let's, let's head there rather than just saying, oh, this is going to happen and there's nothing we can do, you know? I agree. I agree. It's, it is something that we will control and that we can control until the point that we can't. Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, that it will be in its, its own singularity. Um, this thing actually being a real entity um, it, and awake and aware, self-aware is a singularity and we're creating one right now. We're creating a new evolutionary singularity ourselves. Um, it's, I see this coming and uh, um, I think there are some, some really serious issues with the culture of the thing that we're doing. As you said, we're creating a, a fallback position of confirmation bias. Right. And if we, if we don't try to make this thing much more inclusive, much more understanding, but that requires a deeper understanding of who we are and what we are. And let's do that in maybe in another podcast. We'll talk about this, you know, what is it to be a human being? We should be having international conferences on this. You know, what does it mean? Is there anything that all of us have in common in this world that no matter where we're born or whatever? And getting back to your point, just a final thing on this. Fate, in a sense, is the set of cards we're dealt when we're born. We're born into a certain family. We're born with a certain genetic predisposition. We're born with a certain set of abilities or disabilities. We're born into a certain socioeconomic class. We're born into this country or that country. And this is a set of cards that's given to us. That's fate. You have no control over that. Your parents may decide that they want to have a bioengineered baby with one blue eye, one green eye, and, and whatever the hell. This may come. But you yourself are dealt that set. You, you don't um, have a choice in this. The choice is how you play them. Fate is the set of cards you get. Your destiny is how you play them. How you play that set of cards you're given, no matter what it is, how you play that set is your destiny. And liberty shapes destiny. Being free within yourself, as you said the word, choice. Choice is the thing that determines it. If you have no choice, if you have no liberty, it's very hard for you to shape your own destiny. The more liberty you have in your life, the more, more ability you have to shape your own destiny. Which is why liberty is so important in this sense, not just in a political sense of rights and freedoms and obligations and responsibilities, the liberty within yourself to seek fulfillment, to, to seek personal fulfillment and so on. So liberty shapes destiny. When we get it in our head, we can't rile about, complain about, or moan about the set of cards we were given and fate. It's all about how we play them. Take that set of cards and play them to the best of your ability and be like nature. What does nature do? 
Its principle is to thrive and be as beautiful as it can. And that's beautiful. what we got to do. All right, <laughs> thrive and be as beautiful as we can. <laughs> Man, I, I, I could talk to you for hours, but I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. Uh, love to have that conversation separately. I think that's another rabbit hole that we yeah. can go, go down. It's, it's, uh, it's a theme that I'm exploring a novel of my own. Um, I feel like uh, consciousness in the context of technology is absolutely fascinating. And it's something that we really yeah. have to be on top of. Uh, and now is the time to get on top of that, not later when it happens. It's like, um, it's almost like raising a child, right? Like you can, you never know yes. really how it's going to go. <laughs> you can only, you can take the right steps. You can provide love. But ultimately, it will. It will. Uh, he or she will uh, live out their fate. They will live out their journey, and there's only so much control or say you have over that. Um, but you do, in those early formative years and stages, uh, have a lot of, let's say, positive agency. So I feel like that's the moment in time that we are in as humans, as builders, as writers, as technologists. So uh, I'd love to have that conversation with you. We will. Sure, I look forward to it, Drew. And I've really enjoyed this. And once again, congratulations on your own very happy news. God bless Thank you. you. Keep it safe. <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. This was such a pleasure. All the best. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We're still new to podcasting and would be grateful for any feedback. So do drop us a line. Now, just before signing off, I'm super excited to share that after a year of private beta, we have officially launched Inspo, the search engine for inspiration. So if you'd like to enrich your creative thinking on any topic and elevate the start of your creative process, head over to getinspo.co on desktop web and have a play. See you next week and think it's bye.